0: countdown actually it's just saying it's live dude we're live you're supposed to be quiet at this part sorry about that is the music playing am i supposed to be saying one two three you're supposed to be quiet (laughs) okay sorry sorry
1: we gotta wait till we have a viewer at least so one eyeball can see this crap okay uh we got four eyeballs eight eyeballs technically unless one of them's blind all right hold on here we go
2: internet uh, where we are joining for discussion of general conference with with uh, uh, with radio free mormon yeah here we go everybody it's, it's talk time today goodbye
1: and welcome to today's coffee talk episode. We haven't done one of these in a while. Coffee talk is where we usually have different guests on and we just uh, shoot the proverbial shiz. Um,
0: Today we have Radio Free Mormon. How are you doing today, RFM? I'm doing great today. Thank you for that wonderful introduction by evil apostate. (laughs) My only question is whether uh, he's actually anatomically correct. Can you confirm or deny that for us? Well, he is apostate, so he may have the
1: premature TK smoothie going on. We're just, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna go there. He has his dignity. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so today, uh let's see, you reached out to me, you're like, you know, hey, let's let's we gotta say something about general conference. And I was like, I don't know man, I don't know if I can slog through that. It just like it becomes more and more obnoxious the further and further you away you get from the church because it's like these old people who just seem to think that they have the authority to intrude into your life and to impose things and it just becomes offensive, but you are willing to do it. You're willing to slog through it. How did you do it?
0: Well, it's not easy, I will tell you. And in the past, in the distant past, even when I was podcasting, what I would do is I would actually go through every single talk in general conference. I would copy off the transcript. I would put them into one document. It would be like 120 pages. Yeah, Wait, I'm this not is kidding.
1: faithful RFM doing this back in the day?
0: No, no, oh, there's never okay. really been a super faithful version of RFM. But I used to do that and I would go through everything and I would read all the talks and I would cross-reference them and I would be able to refer from one session to another. But then last April, I wanted to try and do the same thing again. By the way, listeners to my program will know that I never actually quite got around to doing a full general conference review from last April. And that's why, because I put this huge Herculean burden upon my shoulders to do all this work. And it just becomes too enormous for me to handle. So what I've done yeah. this time, mm-hmm. what I've done this time, is I said, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to try and do something different. Instead of going through every single session, I'm going to focus on one session at a time. And I'm not going to read any other talks. I'm not going to listen to, well, very many other talks. I did listen a little bit when it was live. But yeah. what we want to talk about today is just the Saturday morning session of this past general conference. And even more refined than that, I've actually gone through those talks with some detail. listened to them a number of times, because I think there's a lot of things that are of interest in these talks and worth commenting on. But really only three talks in the Saturday morning session. And those are the talks that were given by Elder Bednar, by Elder Cook, and by Elder Oaks. The rest are pretty much What? You're not going to go over Russell M. Nelson's opening remarks? Well, I mean, we can, but we only have two hours for this, by the way. We have two hours to go over the first session (laughs) of General Conference, and I think that that's probably a good idea because I've got a feeling it was... It was was just a
1: plub anyway. You mean pablum? Pablum, pablum. (laughs) It it was a wet squib. All right, never mind. Okay,
0: everybody's got their... I think it would be (laughs) sinful. (laughs) I think it would be sinful to spend more time on General Conference talking about it than General Conference itself.
1: Okay, well, that's fair enough. Although we've done. Anyway, okay, so here we go. Uh, Let me set us up so that we have something to refer to. Ah, so we're going to dive right in. And first talk that you would like
0: to uh, go over is which one? David A. Bednar? Well, you did mention about President Nelson's opening comments, and there was only one thing I wanted to say about that. If that's okay, it yeah, is yeah, actually Elder Bednar's the first talk. I mean, uh, President Nelson gets up there and he gives the introductory talk for a general conference. It's kind of short, it's kind of sweet, and it's basically meant to show that, in spite of the worldwide pandemic, the church is still thriving. The church is still growing. Everything is still hunky dory with the church, and he gives a lot of different indicators about how the church is growing in his talk. he doesn 't talk about membership increasing; one wonders how membership would be increasing during the past six months when actually there has been very little in the way of missionary work, unless maybe it 's online right but the uh, thing- well,
1: I see missionaries like posting on Facebook marketplace all sorts of creative things like drawing on the Book of Mormon, desecrating it with like little artsy things and then selling it like a objet d'art sort
0: of uh, thing. So they've, they've gotten creative at least. I don't know if that actually converts anyone. I don't know either. I hope it's successful. But the thing that he said, the thing that President Nelson said, they caught my eye in this list of ways that the church is continuing to thrive. And apparently he's talking within the last six months. I mean, that's what we would generally understand. By the way, for future generations, people listening to this right now live, we'll understand that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Hopefully it's not the middle. Hopefully it's toward the end, but it's certainly been going on before last general conference. And that's why April general conference was done virtually. Nobody actually physically went to conference except for the speakers. Right. And the same thing happened in October, 2020. So we have had six months of virtual general conference. And we've also had six months of nobody going to church. Nobody has been physically going to, to church during this time. I know they're trying to start opening it up on a limited basis right around the time that we're talking, which is, what, October 15th, 2020. But here's the thing that President Nelson said when he said family history work has increased exponentially. And then the next thing he says is the one I want to focus on. Many new wards and stakes have been created. Now, that struck me as odd, and maybe I just don't understand what he means because he doesn't really explain what he means except many new wards and stakes have been created but the question that was left in my mind is that how are any new wards and any new stakes being created since last journal conference when nobody's been going to church
1: I'm looking at it I'm trying to figure out because you got to figure out how they act like you know dirty lawyers and use word games here because lawyers
0: are pathetic hey uh, 95% of lawyers <laughs> give the rest of us a bad name yeah this <laughs> Okay, so in so he's talking he precedes that within the
1: calendar year 2020 so he's talking about since before the pandemic many new wards so that three is many as long as there's three, you can say many okay, so maybe in January Q-E-D. and February,
0: yes, okay, got it very good. Thank you for giving cover for President Nelson. That helps me understand how it is that he can say that with a straight face.
1: I'm just family history work increasing exponentially that's that's a mathematical phrase. I don't know if they can really say that, but Technically, I guess if you have non-Mormons just doing genealogy, that still
0: counts as family history work. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. And he doesn't say exactly how he's measuring it. But here's what I want to do now. That was all I wanted to say about President Nelson. All right. Let's move on. He does his job and he hands the reins over to the first real speaker, the first real talk in General Conference, which is given by Elder David Bednar. And David Bednar is going to give what I think is maybe the most interesting talk in the Saturday morning session. By the way... We're going for two hours. We've got three main talks, so I divided that up in my head, and I figure we got around 40 minutes, probably a little less than that by now, to devote to each talk. But we'll see how we do with that, okay? I'll make sure to make it
1: last longer by interjecting lame
0: jokes. Well, (laughs) and I want to hear your thoughts, too, for crying out loud. But Elder Bednar is going to talk about tests, Okay. And he's Mm. gonna, and the title is We Will Prove Them Herewith. Now, this is really, really interesting to me what David Bednar is doing because he's talking about tests, he's talking about how we do on tests, and he specifically mentions the COVID pandemic, the COVID 19 pandemic, as being a test to see how we're doing. And specifically, he goes on to talk about how we're doing with our food storage. Now, this is really interesting to me, right? And the reason Mm. it's interesting is because number one, the backdrop, For this talk, something that is not brought up in the Saturday morning session. I don't know if it's brought up in any other sessions. I'm kind of doubting that it is. But there is this matzo ball that's hanging out there, which is that six months ago, at the commencement of this pandemic, President Nelson called for a worldwide day of fasting and prayer to turn back the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. And the first one, I think, was on Good Friday. And so we had this worldwide day of fasting and prayer. And the coronavirus cases spiked right after that. I think it it dropped. It dropped briefly for like a day or two. And there was great rejoicing among the faithful in the Internet. It had worked. But then it spikes up again, which leads President Nelson to call for a second day of fasting and prayer to turn back the effects of the coronavirus. And that was just briefly a short time after General Conference, I think, of April. And that one didn't work either. And it's been going on for six months now. So I think this is a really interesting example of what happens in a religious group when they are expecting a miracle to be provided by God, in this case, the turning back of the coronavirus pandemic in response to two worldwide days of fasting and prayer, but it doesn't happen. What do you it's, do? It's funny that you
1: bring that up. Yeah? I don't know if you have this problem, but I have this problem where I'll, I'll get an idea that I think is really good and I'll start working on it and then it just takes too long and I end up having other stuff happen. But one of the things that I had started was a video looking at that, but not looking just at that. It started out by looking at, because he wasn't the only prophet of God to do this. Uh, Kevin Copeland also do this. If you've seen those video memes where he's like, Corona, I blow the breath of God at you and he like, if you watch his show several times, he said, Corona is finished. And it's just like he, he's standing in the seat of the apostle of God. And so, and then I mapped out the cases and put a little data point. This is where Kevin Copeland uh, said that Corona was finished but the cases kept going up. This is where he blew the breath of God, but it kept going up. So clearly there's no correlation here. And clearly Kenneth Copeland has no power over the pandemic or to call upon the powers of God. And I think all Mormons would agree with that. But then you follow that up with now here is the time point because it was just like within a week of each other where the prophet of the church called for the worldwide fast and the cases kept going up. And then here's the second worldwide fast and the cases kept going up. So if you're going to conclude based on Kenneth Copeland's irrelevance, to the number of cases that he has no connection to the powers of God. You can't help but also conclude that about Russell M. Nelson.
0: Right, exactly. And so what ends up happening is six months later, there's no mention of these two worldwide days of fasting and prayer. There is mention actually of the COVID virus pandemic in general conference. They do actually acknowledge its existence. I suppose it's hard to not do so when nobody's showing up to attend general conference. And all the general authorities, or at least the top 15, are on a stage in these nice chairs that are situated at least six feet apart from each other. But this is now, according to Elder Bednar, this is a test by God on his Latter-day Saints. And so we don't mention, or at least Elder Bednar does not mention, the two days of fasting and prayer and how God seems to have ignored that or not heard it or decided against it. And now... Because the praying did not work, and God did not provide the miracle that was asked for at the direction of the prophet of God, by the way. Now it becomes a test, and that's how we're going to treat it. We're going to forget about the prayer and the fasting, and we're just going to talk about it in terms of a test. This is a test that God is giving us to see how well we're doing in our lives.
1: Mm, Well... I don't know. Every time Bednar talks, he always finds some way to demean the audience somehow. Whether it's they don't understand the most important principle or people just don't get it or they interpret it the wrong way. I mean, just watch any of his talks and he's going to always talk about how people just don't get something. But I think that this test that he's talking about, I get the feeling that the brethren sit in their, I guess now, Zoom meetings on Thursdays and talk amongst each other. And I feel like maybe they're feeling, if they're true believers, like this might be a test for them as well, just in terms of, you know, God not answering your prayer, not doing what the fast was for might in and of itself be a test. I mean, if Elder Holland is willing to say that going down the wrong road, receiving a false spiritual impression is a form of test, then anything can be a test. You could just interpret that any way you want.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And before I even get into uh, uh, Elder Bednar's comments, I want to say one other thing, because the fact of what happened with the fasting and prayer and the COVID virus not being turned away lends itself, excuse me, or leads us to two equally unattractive conclusions. Either, either God decided from the outset that, uh, He Okay, let me start this way. Either God ignored the prayers and the prayers have no influence over God and God is not moved by the prayers of his prophet and by the prayers of his saints, right? Mm -hmm. That's one conclusion that is not very appealing unless God wanted to have this coronavirus pandemic spread in spite of the prayers of his saints. And this was his plan all along. And that's the reason that he ignored the prayers of his saints, right? It seems to be one or the other. Now, if it's the first one, That's not very attractive because we would like to think that God would heed the prayers of his saints, especially when there's so many of them doing it. And it's accompanied by fasting, right? We're doing everything right here. Mm -hmm. But the other conclusion that God wants to have this as a test, which seems to be where Elder Bednar is coming down six months later, then that lends itself to the conclusion that President Nelson is so out of touch with the mind and will of God, which was to have this be a test and have it continue all the way through the year up to October General Conference, that he is so out of touch with that that he nevertheless called upon the saints to do two worldwide days of fasting and prayer to get God to change his mind. Mm. None of those conclusions are really helpful to the church. No, and so that's why I'm, I'm guessing that there's no part in General Conference where they're even going to talk about the two unsuccessful worldwide days of fasting and prayer from six months ago. And by the way, under the title, present day proving and trying, that's an Elder Bednar's talk. This is where he makes the connection between the COVID virus pandemic and the testing that he's talking about. He says, the year 2020 has been marked in part by a global pandemic that has proved, examined, and tried us in many ways. And then he says, I pray that we as individuals and families are learning the valuable lessons that only challenging experiences can teach us, right? But the main one is food storage, okay? And he's gonna talk about food storage under the next section, Proving and Preparation. I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Okay, yes. so now here's the problem for Elder Bednar. By the way, I, I'm sorry to be running away with your show. I'll consider no, no, myself- No, that's okay. Okay, I'll consider myself a guest on your show, okay? And therefore you I'm have I'm the to- guest on your show because you can take this audio and put it on your channel too. Oh, okay. Well, then I should be giving you more time, but I want you to, I've done all this research and I want to oh, show, yeah. share that with, this with the audience because here's the deal. When I joined the church in 1978, I was hearing about food storage all the time from the church, from general authorities, from the lessons. It was two years of food storage that every member or every family was supposed to have stored away somewhere in their house. And this was for some kind of horrible thing that was going to happen on the earth whether it's a second coming or nuclear warfare or whatever was never completely spelled out but we were supposed to have two years of food storage and then sometime in the 80s uh, it changed to from two years to one year of food storage and then it seems to have petered out and this is one of the things that I used to hear about all the time this is my recollection right that we used to hear all about all the time about was food storage, food storage, food storage. It was like you could not swing a dead cat without hitting some Mormon talking about you need to have food storage. And, but then it petered out. It's kind of like writing in journals. They used to talk about that all the time too, but then they stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to go back. Actually, let me conclude that thought first. Okay. Um, because now for the last like 20 years, it seems like, I haven't heard about food storage in church. I haven't heard about it in general conference. And so now 2020 rolls around, and guess what? It would be a really good thing to have in the midst of a global pandemic. Well, that would be food storage P95 masks. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Never mind. (laughs)
2: Toilet
0: paper. Toilet paper, baby. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we've got a situation where. The, the, um, the leaders of the church were promoting food storage for every member of the church for two years. And then for one year, one year would have been great, by the way, one year would have been great. And they're talking about it all the time when people don't need it. Okay. Now on an individual basis, hold on
1: a second now you're being too harsh because that's how it works. You know, the story of Joseph in Egypt, they were saving up grain when people didn't need it It is based on a dream. You save and prepare when you don't need it. So it's there when you do need it.
0: Right. Right. And he was in charge and he was collecting all that grain for seven years because he knew that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Right. Yeah. Right. So but this is a little different because I think that the challenge that Elder Bednar has set himself is to explain why it is. That the church leaders were talking about food storage all the time, and there was no global pandemic. There was no uh, general reason why members needed it. Maybe specific reasons a guy would lose his you job. You got to remember, like though, that. Yeah? it's not just food storage. Back then, we were in the Cold War, so there was like this looming threat of thermoglobal
1: nuclear winter that was like fueling this desire for food storage. I mean, we had like cans of unprocessed wheat that we'd stuffed away in all different p- corners of our house. We, we would regularly like eat textured vegetable protein just so that we would be acclimated it to it. So, you know, my mom would like open up a can of TVP and we'd be like, we're having TVP. I mean, it was like, there was a whole lot of crap going on with that as well. But to your point, if it really was prophetic, yes, you are gonna prepare before the pandemic hits, but you're gonna prepare up until the pandemic hits.
0: You would think so. And so here's the problem that he's dealing with is that for the last 20 years, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, food storage, food storage, food storage, nuclear Armageddon never occurred during that time period. And then the general authorities essentially stop talking about food storage. They move on to other subjects and 2020 rolls around. People want food storage. And I've got a feeling that President, President Bednar, God forbid, Elder Bednar, Elder Bednar is here. (laughs) Maybe that's why we need the food storage. Seriously though, Elder Bednar is dealing with something that he's hearing a challenge that he's hearing, I think from different members of the churches to, Hey, we don't have food storage now. We need food storage. There's a global pandemic. How come church leaders weren't telling us to have food storage like during the last 20 years? so that we could have it when we needed it. And I have a feeling that that's what he's addressing here. By the way, now here's the stats, the research I did, because I decided I would go back and I would look at General Conference, right, and see how many times food storage was mentioned in the past several decades. And I went onto this great website. It's called, um, I think it's General Conference Corpus. Where yes, they have so I'm all familiar the, with it. Yeah, where they have all the general conferences all the way back to the beginning, and even up to October, this most recent October, they've got that loaded in there. And you can do word searches, and phrase searches within it to find how many times a word or a phrase has been used in general conference. So here's the rough data on that. Okay. Before you get into that RFM, I just did a search because
1: <laughs> yes, because the question is, you could say that the prophet could stop. You know, because the the I think what they're going to go for is like, you know, we told you, and now it's a test of who was actually listening to the prophet. Well, then you have to go and you have to say, okay, at the time that they stopped, what was the average shelf life of food storage? Because if the shelf life of food storage is 10 years, meaning that every 10 years you have to cycle it through or it's no good or it's even dangerous, then that means that when they stop, you kind of got to do it within that time frame. But it looks like it was about 20 years now. If they were to do it now, it's
0: 30 years. But anyway, keep going. Okay. So I, I was wondering if I was remembering this correctly, because I was just going off my memory from being in church for all this time. And it appears that the number of times that food storage, the phrase food storage is mentioned in general conference actually does reflect my memory. And it shows that food storage was used seven times in the decade of the 1970s. That's how it divides them up is by decade. Food storage was mentioned seven times in the 1970s in general conference, which I think is reflective of how often it would have been talked about in other forms and in other uh, materials and manuals and other lessons in the church. In the 1970s, so seven times in the 1970s, eight times in the 1980s. So there's an increase there in the 1980s. In the 1990s, the very next decade after it was mentioned eight times in the 1980s, in the 1990s, it drops drastically to being mentioned only two times in general conference. Hmm. Then you get to the first decade of the 2000s, which uh, I'll just call the 2000s if that's okay. I'm not sure how to actually refer to the the first decade. The odds, the odds. OK? The odds. The first decade of this um, century, uh, it drops even further. What, it is mentioned what? one time in the entire decade, the first decade of the 2000s food storage administration, one time in General conference, followed up by one time in the following decade, in the 2010s. So my recollection appears to be correct. that There was a great emphasis on food storage in the 1970s and the 1980s, and then it drops precipitously. Okay. So here Elder Bednar is trying to uh, explain why it is that really it's not the leader's fault that they haven't been talking about food storage when food storage was needed. And all they did was talk about food storage when it wasn't needed. Hmm. By the way, here's the final stat. In the decade of the 2020s, Jonathan, which actually sort of just started, right? There's only two general conferences on the book in the decade of the 2020s in 2020. Now, all of a sudden, just in 2020 alone, the the number of times food storage has been mentioned has skyrocketed from one in the prior decade to five times just this year. And actually it was not even mentioned in April general conference. Cause I went and I looked them up cause you can do that on this website as well. It was not um, mentioned anytime, even in April, all five times uh, that it's been mentioned this year are in this most recent October general conference. Let me
1: and, guess in this talk, did anyone no, else three talk of them. about it? Yes. Three
0: of them. <laughs> oh, no three way, of us five really? <laughs> are in this talk by <laughs> David Bednar. So after mentioning food storage one time in the entire decade, of the 2000s, the aughts, one time in the entire decade of the 2010s, all of a sudden, just in this year alone, it's been mentioned five times. And those five times were in October 2020 General Conference. And it seems to me this is a little bit like Elder Bednar closing the barn door after the cow is out. Yeah. Well,
1: uh, you know, they're going to do what serves them best and that is well it's like gosh we 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 kind of dropped the ball on that one i guess we should have been talking about that for the last uh, 30 years well guess what we, we, we could just tell them that you know when a prophet talks it's for all times in the final dispensation so we'll just tell them that if they didn't do it you know it's because it's part of the test and they were supposed to have been doing it and so it's really their fault so we got more blame reversal uh, it's never the leader's fault. Uh, they're not accountable. It's, it's always the
0: shortcoming of the members. And there you have it. And this is actually what he is going to end up saying. And I think that's a good point. And here's what he says, okay? I'm, I'm skipping a bit here because listen to the forcefulness of his language. I mean, he soars to rhetorical heights, at least for him. In talking about why it's not the leader's fault, it's the member's fault. Exactly. And here's what he says. Some church members opine. Oh, my gosh. Opine. Give their opinion. Some church members opine that emergency plans and supplies, food storage, and 72-hour kits must not be important anymore because the brethren have not spoken recently and extensively about these and related topics in general conference. Well, yeah, the stats show that that's true. And the reason he's bringing it up is because this is the pushback he's hearing. So he's responding to it. And now Mm -hmm. he's going to say why it is that it's not the leader's fault. Do you you have that paragraph? Yeah, I'm highlighting it here on the screen. Uh, Can you read read his explanation as to why it's the member's fault?
1: (laughs) Repeated admonitions to prepare that have been proclaimed by the leaders of the church for decades... The consistency of prophetic counsel over time creates a powerful concert of clarity and a warning volume far louder than solo performances can ever produce. Boy, you see what I
0: mean about the soaring rhetoric?
1: Yeah, well, he does this thing where one of his, his artistic flourishes is uh, alliteration with yeah. consonants and stuff so he'll if you just watch all of his talks the co- you know the consistency of counsel a powerful concert of clarity he does these things all the time it's it's obnoxious
0: right but what he's trying to say is hey in spite of the fact we haven't really mentioned it for the past generation for the past deck uh two decades really and especially since we didn't mention it right before the freaking pandemic hit when it, it might have nice to know right?
1: Oh my goodness. Hold on. So, so in the next sentence, he starts telling you what, you know, the people who aren't prepared, this is what you have just as challenging times reveal inadequacies in temporal preparedness. So too, the maladies of spiritual casualness and complacency inflict their most detrimental effects during difficult trials. So if you don't have food storage, it means that you've been afflicted by spiritual casualness and complacency.
0: Absolutely. It's your fault, not ours. And uh, when you talk about him always um, sort of making the members feel bad, like they're not doing enough and he's better and he's smarter than everybody else. Well, guess how he leads into this explanation as to why it's the members fault by talking about how it is that he has his food storage. You're right. He talks about he and his wife going through their own food storage inventory. Exactly. And this is during the last six months, during the COVID-19, while it's spreading rapidly, we have worked since the earliest days of our marriage to follow prophetic counsel, unlike you schmoes who don't yep. have your food storage because we weren't talking about it in the last 20 years, about preparing for unforeseen challenges. So examining our state of readiness in the midst of the virus and earthquakes seemed like a good and timely thing to do. We wanted to find out our grades on these unannounced tests. And guess what? We passed with soaring colors. Yeah, we did great. Of course, he tries to give a laugh line. Uh, this is supposed to be a humorous story where he says that they found a few of their uh, food storage items that were pushed in the back of the closet. And uh, they were scared to open them because they thought that it might cause a second global pandemic.
1: <laughs> I, I wish I had that up because... It's just kind of funny, because you can tell where the punchline is, and it's almost like he doesn't really understand where you're supposed to pause and wait for audience laughter. And he doesn't give any visual cues to it, because he's got this reptilian facial, uh,
0: no emotion affect thing going. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think of him as Terminator Jr. (laughs) He's almost lifelike. But so that's the whole deal here going on. There's something else he does later on, which I think is connected. But the main thing is, is it's not our fault that we haven't warned you in the last two decades leading up to this coronavirus pandemic that you should really have some food storage and maybe some extra toilet paper on hand. Then the coronavirus pandemic strikes, which immediately indicates that maybe they don't know what the future is as much as they might want the members to think that they know what the future is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then he gives the excuse and the excuse and reason is it's not our fault. It's your fault because you didn't listen to what we said a generation ago and keep your food storage going. But then here's something that's interesting at the end of his talk. By the way, did you have anything else you wanted to say about that? I'm sorry. I'm just running over you.
1: Yeah, I mean, his whole pattern of blame reversal is just it's always there. So it was just fun to see it
0: happen again. Okay, so. What I see him doing as he constructs his talk is he's casting about where can I find some fig leaf of prophetic foreknowledge on the part of one of the church leaders to try and cover our nakedness for not knowing about this coronavirus pandemic going to hit the world in 2020. And what he does is he has to go back 22 years to an informal conversation with Elder Holland. And he says this is Uh back when he was the president of BYU-Idaho, right? And by that, I mean, Elder Bednar and Elder Holland, then still an apostle, comes over to talk. He's having a an informal meeting now with some of the students at BYU, Idaho. And Elder Bednar says that in this meeting, I don't know if you have that up there while I was serving as the president. okay, and it's 1998, right? Speaking of one of our weekly devotionals, Susan and I invited a group of students to meet and visit with Elder Holland before he delivered his message. Now, it's not clear exactly what the basis was that they chose these students to have this wonderful meeting with Elder Holland. Not necessarily important. I'm just curious that way. But as our time together was drawing to a close, I asked Elder Holland, if you could teach these students just one thing, what would it be? And now it says he answered. Okay, now if you listen to the audio of this, and by the way, Uh, we're probably not going to get the audio, but if you listen to the audio, he's going to say he answered, quote. Yeah. He actually says the word quote, and then he unquotes it at the end of the quote from Elder Holland, which is fascinating to me, because how is it that Elder Bednar is going to be quoting something that Elder Holland said off the cuff and off the record in an informal meeting with a bunch of students, and how is Elder Bednar going to be quoting that word for word 22 years later, I don't know if he was recording Elder Holland without Elder Holland's knowledge or if he's actually wrote it down, maybe right afterward because he thought it was so profound. Or if he's just sort of remembering kind of what he said and then wanting it to sound like this is exactly the words that Elder Holland said, because this is the fig leaf for prophetic insight. Okay, can you read the quote from Elder Holland from 22 years ago that shows that the leaders of the church actually do have prophetic insight in spite of not seeing COVID-19 coming?
1: I don't think I can get my jowls to shake the way that they're supposed to, but we
0: are, witnessing,
1: <laughs> we are witnessing an ever greater movement towards polarity. The middle ground options will be removed from us as Latter-day Saints. The middle of the road will be withdrawn. If you are treading water in the current of a river, you will go somewhere. You will simply go wherever the current takes you. Going with the stream, following the tide, drifting in the current will not do choices have to be made. Not making a
0: choice is a choice. Learn to choose now, unquote. Right. And so here's the prophetic part of it, right? I mean, this is kind of standard stuff. I think you and I both heard this hundreds of times in church. And this idea about growing polarity uh, in the last days, that's right from the Book of Mormon. It talks about that. And I think that's in 1 Nephi, maybe chapter 14. But here's the conclusion that Elder Bednar is going to draw from Elder Holland's statement that he just quoted from 22 years ago, right? That Elder Holland's statement about increasing polarization has been proven prophetic. See, that's the point he wants to make. Mm -hmm. Has been proven prophetic by the societal trends and events of the 22 years since he answered my question. Bingo, there's the fig leaf. We didn't see COVID-19 coming. We weren't telling you to get food storage in preparation for it unless you're going to take what we said over 20 years ago into account like I and Susan did. But Elder Holland, 22 years ago, in this informal meeting, which is a bunch of students and off the record and not talking to the church as a whole, talked about the increasing polarity that would occur among different people. And therefore, hey, don't worry. We've got the gift of prophecy. We've got prophetic counsel and prophetic foresight among the leaders of the church. And therefore, don't look at our failure to foresee the coronavirus pandemic over here.
1: Yeah. The thing that struck me about this quote is it's like, you know, you you can't just follow the tide. You you can't just go along with the times. You've got to make a choice. And at the same time, in the Gospel Topic essay, they're saying, well, the prophets did some racist stuff, but they were just going along with the time. And so it's kind of like, what are you doing? You know, which way is it going to (laughs) be? Because... All the stuff that they're now kind of have a black eye over in the modern era, looking back at racist teachings and statements, sexist teachings and statements, their excuse is, well, you know, America was racist. They were just, you know, steeped in that culture. They were going along with this wider society around them. But we
0: don't allow that for you. You know, I saw something like that in Elder Whiting's talk, Becoming Like Him, which we're not going to talk about, right? But... This, this is the standard talk about how you need to be perfect, just like Jesus and not just in yeah. the next life in this life. And you do it by continued effort and you need to keep trying to become like Jesus. And we understand you're going to fail, but you have to keep trying and struggling to do that because I won't, I won't find it. Okay. I probably could, if I look, but I don't want to take the time to do it, even though I have it up here on my screen is he talks about honesty being one of the attributes of Jesus. And that if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to be honest as well. And I saw that and I thought, really? is Does this hmm. just apply to the members of the church or do you leaders of the church, do you subscribe to this?
1: Well, you know, lying for the Lord is, it's really not dishonest because we've had our second anointing and the Lord told us to do it,
0: so... Well, right, and the first thing I think about is Elder Ballard in that face-to-face devotional a couple of years back now where he said that the leaders of the church from the to- from the very beginning, even from the time that Adam came out of the Garden of Eden, the leaders of the church have never hidden anything from anybody. You remember that statement, right? Yes. Yeah. And
1: on top of that, they're as transparent as they know how to be. Exactly. But Which
0: here's is a brilliant legal statement. <laughs> yeah, it means... Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It sounds like it means something, but it means nothing. Here's the quote from Elder Whiting. Are we concluded with Elder Bednar and moving on? Um,
1: Let me see. There was one, let's see, uh, promise and testimony. I think so. There was something he said in the, oh, I don't know. Just, you know, a lot of the time when I go over these talks, I look at psychological manipulation that I see embedded in their stories. He gives in the middle of it a talk about a father giving a eulogy at the funeral of his son who died while he was on a mission. And he makes a point of saying, you know, no matter what happens, we're all in. And he's bringing this as an example of how members of the church should be. So, if you're feeling doubt about the prophet's ability to foretell drastic events and to bring that to the forefront Um, you know, they've been talking about the, you know, drinking coffee, they've been talking about porn, they've been talking about all sorts of things in the last couple of decades that they could have been talking about preparation for, but they didn't. So if those things are starting to cause you doubt, well, then you just need to realize that those doubts are your own spiritual weakness and you need to be all in no matter what happens. Even if your son or loved one dies, because of your participation in the things the brethren have told you to do, that should strengthen your faith or else you are spiritually weak. It was just, is one of these manipulative messages that you see if you go and look at the rhetoric of the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other group. It's
0: just another example of that type of binding story. And it's in there, so. No, I hear what you're saying. And you're making me think of that other story that Elder Holland told to the uh, newly called mission presidents at the MTC. I think it was the summer of 2017 when he told that incredible story about the, um, the the two brothers, remember? And the older brother left and went off, became a Hells Angel and and took up at the Hells Angels Clubhouse in Southern California. And the, the little brother they grows eventually up- had to retract the story because it was... Fabricated. Well, because all of the miraculous elements of the story ended up proving to be not true once the family contacted Elder Holland and said, um, we need to talk to you about this. <laughs> but but the whole thing is that uh, the, the huge selling point of the story was how God had inspired the apostle, whoever was the apostle in charge of making mission calls that day that this younger yes. brother gets called to go to Southern California, how God had inspired... The mission president put him in this particular district within the mission and how the Holy Ghost had inspired this missionary to go to this particular house in order to meet his brother, whom he didn't recognize, didn't know. And there's the whole story about that, right? And the older yeah. brother ends up joining the church. Wonderful. Or coming back to church, I guess, is probably more accurate, getting rebaptized and then married in the temple. There are a lot of issues related to that story that I went over in a podcast at Radio Free Mormon yeah. back in 2017. It was a lot of fun. But, but if you take that same reasoning and Elder Holland had said something about, can you imagine all the activity at the switchboard in heaven in order to get all of these things to line up and get all these people in the exact right position for this miraculous contact to take place? Okay. That's what the rhetoric is when there's something miraculous or wonderful that happens. But what happens when a missionary dies while he or she is on a mission? Are we going to use that same kind of rhetoric and that same kind of reasoning? Can you imagine the switchboard in heaven and all the things that had to take place for the apostles to call this missionary to the mission where he's going to end up dying or getting killed? And the mission president to put him in the exact right district where he's going to get killed. And then for the Holy Ghost to move upon this missionary so he gets to the right place in time where he ends up getting killed. When you use that same kind of reasoning equally to describe all the different things that can happen on a mission, then I think it can start to become somewhat problematic.
2: Yeah.
1: But they just don't frame, you know, you pick and choose in the
0: toolbox of religious manipulative rhetoric, which one you're going to apply. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I was a Mormon for 40 years. I still am. So over 40 years now. And I will tell you that as a member of the church, I got extremely adept at compartmentalizing these different arguments, these different stories. And it would never have occurred to me back when I was um, an observant and faithful and believing Latter-day Saint to ever think about applying the same reasoning from one kind of story to another kind of story like I just did.
1: Yeah. And if you do that, then you're opening yourself up to the criticism of being a fault finder, pointing the finger of scorn, just looking for criticisms that don't have to be there. And it's just a uh, it's, it's it's one of those traps, one of those rhetorical traps that you get stuck in.
0: You yeah. want to go to the next talk now? Oh, my gosh. There's actually one other thing I want to say about Elder Bedford. Oh, already. yeah. Okay. Made me think Let's of- do it. Okay, so he's doing his talk. He's going to do his talk on tests. So he goes to his scriptures, or he goes to the computer version of the scriptures, and does a Google search for tests. The word tests or testing in the scriptures, right? Oh comes my up, God,
1: I remember this. Yeah,
0: go ahead. He comes up with nothing. He's going. <laughs> there's no. There's no testing in the scriptures. So what he has to do is he has to go with synonyms, right? And the synonyms mm-hmm. that he finds in the scriptures, which do mean the same thing as testing, are trying and proving. And uh, then there's another word, um, examine, right? Prove, mm-hmm. examine and try. Now, the thing that's interesting to me about this is not just that it sort of opens up the pattern that he's going through and preparing his talk, but he is willing because he wants to talk about tests. This is important to him. It's an important idea, I think, uh, in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Latter-day Saint Church, this idea of testing. Um, but he can't find the word test that he wants to use, and therefore he'll find synonyms and he will proceed with his message Anyway, using the synonyms of examine, try, and prove. Okay. So here's the thing Elder Oaks, in a different context, does his, his message is we're not going to freaking apologize for anything. The church doesn't ask for apologies, nor does it give apologies. And in fact, guess what? Elder Oaks says the word apologize does not appear in the scriptures. And he uses the fact that the word apologize doesn't appear in scriptures as a basis and a justification for his saying that the church is not going to apologize for anything. Why would we have to apologize for anything when the word apologize is not even in the scriptures? This is my favorite point. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) That's the end of the discussion for him. He's not going to take the next step that Elder Bednar did and look for all the synonyms in the scriptures about apologizing and asking for forgiveness, right? No, that's it. Done. End of story. So when an apostle like Elder Bedard wants to talk about testing, he's going to talk about synonyms, even though the word testing doesn't appear in the scriptures. And when another apostle, Elder Oaks, wants to talk about why we're not going to apologize, the fact that the word apologize doesn't appear in the scriptures, that's the end of the story. No synonyms need apply.
1: Nope. (laughs) It's just another example of picking and choosing how you're going to use, uh, you know, whatever argument you want to do. And uh, that's a brilliant observation.
0: Uh, I really love that. Well, thank you very much. Praise from Caesar.
2: Here's, <laughs>
1: here's Google it. I mean, it's almost like you can take any good word and just see if it exists in the Scripture. If you take Oak's approach, and then you just be like, "Hey, the word empathy is nowhere in the Scriptures. I got no empathy for you."
0: But, but empathy
1: is a Christ-like, a Christ-like uh, feature. Oh yeah, I'll point to it in the
0: Scriptures. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Elder Whiting, this is what he had said about honesty. This is just the one thing, and then we'll go on. He said, such honesty, such honesty, like, you know, the attribute of the Savior that we're all supposed to aspire to. Such honesty is vital if we are to progress in becoming like him. Indeed, honesty is one of his attributes. So I'll just suggest here that honesty is one of the attributes of Jesus that the leaders of the church appear to still be working on. (laughs) They're not perfect. Yeah, I actually ended up listening to his talk
1: and I think it is worthy of, of a deep dive at another context. You know, it's not worthy in that he's just some schmuck, you know, like nobody really cares what he says. He's not in the he's not in the Q fifteen or whatever. But he's he's almost doing there's this double speak. Where a few conferences ago, we had Elder Holland give a talk about toxic perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't know where people get the idea, but, you know, they have to be perfect. Nobody ever said that you had to be like Christ or whatever. And then we have here a few conferences later that's like, what if we actually had to be like Christ? And, And, you know, we actually had to be perfect. And it's just like, you know, they they have both sides of the coin in the pot so they can pull out whichever one that they need, either to defend themselves or to shift the blame onto you.
0: Yeah. And I would say to Elder Holland, I mean, even at the time, I think we all knew that he was blowing smoke up a certain orifice of the members of the church. Because, yeah, we've heard these talks before. But here is a classic example by the 70, Elder Whiting, which is exactly what it is that causes Latter-day Saints to overwhelmingly feel underwhelmed and under uh, inadequate and have feelings of uh, inadequacy and even sometimes depression because they are just never good enough. They can never do everything the church wants them to do.
1: Yep. Perpetual inadequacy. And it's it's just another word for that toxic perfectionism. And it just creates a cycle of dependence on the church for the, you know, the, the sense of healing and rightness that comes when you're overwhelmed with your inability to live up to the impossible uh, expectations. But it, it's one of these things, that any group you go into, whether it's Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses, any of these other groups, there's always going to be impossible things that you're supposed to do. And when you don't do it, you have to turn to the group in order to feel that you're right with yourself and it just keeps you bound to the group, but also feeds that cycle that leads to depression and self-loathing.
0: Yeah. All right. Are we going to Elder Cook's talk now? Let's go to Elder Cook, which his talk is Hearts Knit, K-N-I-T, in righteousness and unity. And also, I think um, it's very similar in some respects to the next talk that we're going to talk about, which is Elder Oaks, who concludes this Saturday morning, Session. There's a lot of similarities between the two. And as an overview, if I can, of both talks, what Elder Cook and Elder Oaks do is they talk about um, the Mormon experience and Mormon relationships with people in other races or ethnicities, such as Native Americans, and especially back in the the latter half of the 19th century in Utah, in the Utah Territory and also with blacks. Okay. Um, He throws in Latinos, but it's mainly about Indians for, I'm sorry, I said Indians for elder Quentin cook, native Americans. There's a reason I I slipped and said Indians because the black Hawk Indian war is something he doesn't mention, but something that lurks in the background of what he's talking about in one of his stories and elder Oaks talking about uh, black people. Now, And the church's relationship with black people, which, as we know, has um, a few hiccups, if I can put it that way, in the history. But the thing that's remarkable to me is that Elder Cook and Elder Oaks will give a brief overview of history of the Latter-day Saint experience with uh, Native Americans and also with black people and slavery. And they will carve their way through this history in such a way as to make it sound like there has never been any problem or any issues between the Mormon church and native Americans or between the Mormon church and black people. They carve through the facts in such a way that if you don't know the history, if you're coming to this and you're not aware of what has actually happened in the past. And I, am sure I only have the briefest and barest of knowledge. I'm not an expert in it, though. I lived through part of it. You would think that the LDS church has never had a problem with, uh, the native Americans. They've never had a problem with Black people, everything's hunky-dory. And what Elder Oaks is going to do is he is going to, in in at least two places, he's going to chastise members of the church and the United States as a whole for its bad history, negative history, problematic history in dealing with uh, race relations, especially with African Americans and slavery. And on the one hand, I thought, you know, he's saying a lot of positive things, and I, I think that what he's saying has value. And so I was wondering why it is that this was striking me wrong, why it sort of left a bad taste in my mouth to hear him saying these words. And then it occurred to me, I think the reason why, is because of what I'm talking about, that they're presenting the LDS church as never having anything to do with any of this negative history. Yeah. And the thought occurred to me that when you, Elder Oaks, when you are the leader, of an organization that for more than half of its history has excluded black people from your holiest buildings, your most sacred buildings solely because of the color of their skin. You might not want to sound so high and mighty when you're criticizing and condemning the racism of others.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm just scan- scanning through uh, cook's talk. He has the audacity to talk about, the condemnation of slavery and with the implication that, you know, this has always been the Lord's law. When, uh, if you go back and look, I mean, on the issue of slavery itself, he he makes a point that the Mormons were persecuted in, uh, in Missouri and Illinois. And so they had to move out West and out West, they got to form their own government with the, the leader of the church also being the political leader. And so they weren't constrained by wider society. But what happened, if you look and read those 1852 um, lectures before the legislature that Brigham Young gave, he creates a scriptural and revelatory justification and rationalization for slavery that was the argument that was the forceful punch that made Utah's legislature adopt slavery when it did not have to, it was not being compelled to. And so the complicity of the church in this whole process absolutely condemns their, you know, their ability of the early leaders to know, truly know the mind of God on the issue of universal brotherhood. But the hypocrisy of them now lecturing
0: the world is on point, as you describe. No, and that's what I thought, too, because what Elder Cook does when he's talking about slavery specifically is he talks about, you know, those bad Missourians. The non-Mormon Missourians, when um, the Mormons moved in, who they, ha- they hated the Indians, but the Mormons loved the Indians. And uh, the Missourians, many of ha- them had slaves. And so they didn't like the Mormons because the Mormons were against slavery. And he carves this course through Mormon history, even out to Utah, without ever m- once mentioning that Utah was a slave territory. Yeah. And there were Mormons who, guess what, had slaves. I think one slave was even given in tithing at one point. Yeah. So it's okay to say things that, you know, slavery is bad. We got that Elder Cook. But when you're talking about Mormon history and then omitting certain facts to make it sound like Mormons were great, it's like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood between the Mormons and the African-Americans and between the Mormons and the Native Americans. When you are omitting history that shows that that was not the case, then I have a problem with it. Now, I do have to say, okay, in his defense, in his defense, I'm a defense attorney by nature, by calling, by career. He does give a one sentence, almost a throwaway line, to acknowledge that, you know, things weren't always perfect between the Mormons and the Native Americans. And I'm looking for that.
1: I have it on the screen. Okay, what is it? As leaders, we're not under the illusion that in the past all relationships were perfect, all conduct was Christ like, or all decisions were just. However, That's it. our faith teaches that we are all children of our Father in heaven and we worship Him and
0: His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Right. And so that's his uh, token acknowledgement of maybe there's something that's not so great lurking behind the scenes, things that he's not going to talk about. He's only going to talk about the positive things. And he leads off with this story, this detailed story, right? About general... Hold on, before you get to the
1: story, though, in that language, he, he does just like the gospel topic essay, he doesn't specifically lay the blame at the foot of the leaders. He leaves it open so that people can interpret it that it was probably the members, you know, and... Just like Moses came down from the mountain, the people weren't ready for the real thing, so he had to crash the tablets or whatever. The leaders are just sitting there exasperated by how the members just aren't ready for these things. and It's the thing that really gets my gullet when the church talks about this race thing. You know, to the extent that they all say that when the revelation allowing blacks to have the priesthood was released, everybody was just like, oh, thank goodness, and they wept with joy. What that means is that all these members who wept with joy or whatever... They were sitting there knowing the truth of universal brotherhood and the equality of man and women before God, and they were held from being able to publicly acknowledge and accept that because the leaders were stuck in
0: these old ways, and it just always gets lost when when they do these things. Yeah, so once again, that line, as leaders, we are not under the illusion that in the past, all relationships were perfect. Well, what relationships with whom and between whom, right? All conduct was Christ-like or all decisions were just. That's all he's going to say about it. And then he's going to go right back into his theme. And this comes right after this story. Are we okay to go with the story now? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Um, Right after this long, detailed story, which has got to be the best story that he can possibly find. I actually have my doubts as to whether he found this or whether um, it was uh, Matt, uh, was it Matt Groh from the Church Historians Department? Or maybe Katie Holbrook, who brought this to his attention because it's an obscure book. I'd never heard of the story before. But, of course, the one story he's going to talk about is designed to show how at least one Latter-day Saint woman in 1872 treated Native Americans really well. And this is where, of course, um, Brigham Young and without going into the details of the story, everybody can read it if they want. Uh, Brigham Young and a bunch of other guys from the church come to this house right out there in St. George, it was. So they come to this house of this other member and the woman of the house has food prepared and she feeds them at the table. And then five Native Americans come walking through the door and they sit down. And this lady, this one LDS woman tells the Native Americans, that she will feed them. She only has enough food right now for these guys who are already there, who were invited, right? But she will feed them after they're done. And she does so. And a question is asked, are you just going to feed them scraps outside the kitchen door? And she says, no, I'm going to feed them exactly the same kind of food in exactly the same kind of way. And at exactly the same kind of place at the table as uh, Brigham Young and the other white leaders. And she does so. And so this is the story, and it's designed to illustrate this point that he makes during the course of the story, where he says, she, this is General Kane's wife, she also found church members were kind and understanding with respect to Native Americans. I'm sorry, this is actually at Fillmore, okay? It's at Fillmore where this happens, if anybody cares. St. George was mentioned above. Mm -hmm. But you notice this happens in 1872, right? Yeah. 1872 is a significant year in Utah history because that is the year that concluded the black Hawk Indian war. Hmm. And without, I did a little research on this. I had heard the name and, uh, it's, it was always called the black Hawk Indian war. It may now be being called the black Hawk war to avoid the use of the term Indian. Uh, it's called both nowadays, but, um, Anyway, it's the Black Hawk War. Black Hawk was one of the Native Americans. And without going into detail, what ends up happening during this war, which goes on for several years, is that there is fighting and there's violence between the Mormons and between the Native Americans of various tribes. Uh, There's obviously going to be tension and conflict because here come the Latter-day Saints into the Utah Valley and they're pushing the Indians out who have used this area for their subsistence. And a lot of the Indians are, are actually starving because of this. So they kill some Mormon cattle. They're eating the Mormon cattle in order to not starve. The Mormons find out about it and things go downhill from there. But it was very frustrating for the Latter-day Saints. It was very frustrating for the Native Americans as well. But what an article I read talked about, it was so frustrating for the Latter-day Saints that they ended up indiscriminately, at least on one occasion, if not more, indiscriminately killing Native American women and children. So this is the kind of thing that's going on just in the very few years leading up to this story in 1872. And it was only in 1872 that this Black Hawk War was concluded with a peace treaty. And actually it was done because the federal government finally sent in 200 cavalry to put down uh, the Black Hawk rebellion or war by physical force. So that's what's been going on in the background. And then to say in 1872, to have Elder Cook say, She also found church members were kind and understanding with respect to Native Americans. I mean, I'm just going, you got to be kidding me. Is this really what we're going to do? Are we really going to go around this huge iceberg so carefully that we're not going to mention what really is going on there? And we're going to try and do it in such a way as to make it sound like, once again, it's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood or it's Sesame Street out there between the Mormons and the Native Americans when such was really not at all the case.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and he's filling this whole talk with little peppered areas to try to make the point that the gospel that Mormons teach transcends the divisiveness of society at any given point in time. One of the other things he says in this story is that when this outsider came and visited Salt Lake, they were amazed by how women were empowered to take on any vocation that they wanted. And then the story of absolute unity. And then he goes on later just to talk about how the gospel unifies people even, you know, to the exclusion of slavery because the, the early church didn't accept slavery. It's like, like you say, they're weaving around all the different dark spots of embarrassing truth in church history to depict it in this whitewashed, deceptive way as being somehow removed from the very troubled past of our nation.
0: Yeah, and he did something very tricky with the language about women, too, because it's fascinating to me that you synopsized his statement about women being able to hold any job they wanted in Utah, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the impression I got the first time, too. But then I went and I looked back at it a little bit closer when I was reviewing it for like the sixth time, and I realized that that's actually not what he said. What he says is this. For instance, she, this is General Kane's wife, right, a non-Mormon. For instance, she found that any career by which a woman could earn a living was open to them in Utah.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're right. I didn't even pick up on that. Is he a lawyer? Yeah. He is a lawyer? Oh,
0: Oh, yeah. right. It takes a lawyer to catch a lawyer, baby. (laughs)
1: I want to be a doctor. Well, I can't use that example because there actually was a a, a doctor woman that that um, kind of pioneered that from from Utah. But it's like only the uh, the careers that were already available to women only. So if they were, you know,
0: primarily masculine careers, they they couldn't pursue it anyway. That's great. Can we go down further in his talk now? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, now he's going to do this really strange thing. And it's very difficult to, for me to make sense out of what he's saying because it seems that he's saying two different things and they're contradictory and they relate to diversity and culture.
2: Mm.
0: And on the one hand, he's going to talk about how great culture is and how great diversity is and how wonderful is it, how wonderful it is and how we celebrate it. Uh, and then he's going to go on further and he's going to say, except for the fact that we don't want you to have your culture. okay. We want you you to give up your culture. I will explain it. But before we get there, he leads off with an absolutely uh, flabbergasting comment where he says he goes through that 200 year thing. And I'm not going to talk about Mm -hmm. that too much because I think it's really not that interesting. But he starts off a paragraph with he says, with our all inclusive doctrine. We can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Hmm. So, apparently, he thinks that the LDS doctrine is all-inclusive. What are your thoughts about that?
1: I I think he, in one word, myopic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're going into future sessions. That's not fair. Okay. Uh, I I think he's looking at this whole talk as, okay, we're going to talk about culture and race. He's not realizing that when people are talking about diversity, they include many different aspects of diversity, which also includes sexual orientation and gender expression in the modern realm. And if you were to include all of those different facets in the characterization of the gospel as it exists today, it is not
0: all-inclusive. It is specifically exclusive. It is. And that's the thing that just hit me over the head when he says that. I said, did he really say that? And I Rewound it and they go, yeah, he did. With our all inclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity because there's a lot of celebration of diversity going on in the LDS church. Maybe you missed it, Jonathan.
1: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> any category that you are, uh, that is available to righteous members of the church can be inhabited. So it's completely
0: diverse among the categories that are allowed. <laughs> exactly and so what he's going to do now is he says unity and diversity are not opposites okay and i I
1: mean that's a yeah. nice sentiment
0: and by the way this is one of the things because he's going to reverse himself on this once you get back into what he says later on but okay. the fact that he says this When he doesn't really, I mean, I'm not going to say whether he believes it, but let's let's put it this way. When he says these kind of things, when it is manifestly not the case, that we have all inclusive doctrine and we celebrate diversity, the fact that he says that tells me that he knows that he should be saying these things. He wants to give this message to the world in conference, in spite of the fact that the way the church operates actually contradicts what he's saying. Hmm. So he is willing to, this is this is a PR move yeah. on his part. He's trying to talk about how great the church is and how we celebrate diversity when actually we don't. So he wants to get that message out there. But fortunately, he continues in his talk and he lets us know that that's really not exactly what he feels. He says unity and diversity are not opposites. Now, unity and diversity can exist together. And I think the way they exist together, this is me talking right now. I think the way they exist together, there are two ways they can exist together. Okay. Is that everybody can tolerate and accept at a minimum, tolerate and accept the diversity of others. Okay. As long as it's not infringing on my rights, you can be as diverse as you want, right? Your right to swing your arm ends where it connects with my nose, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we can all just tolerate it. You know, I mean, if you want to do that, fine. So we can all be inclusive, even in our diversity, we can be United in our diversity and I think that's a wonderful goal and I think it's something that we should strive for and I think to a a large degree certainly not completely. uh, We have uh, arrived at that point in a lot of areas in the United States. Okay, and And you have to
1: ask yourself, what are you unified around in that type of scenario?
0: Yes. And, and I, I would mean,
1: say the thing that you're unifying around, and maybe you have some thoughts on this because you were, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Mm, 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 okay, what you're unifying around is the idea that you can have a pluralistic society that affords this type of freedom to everyone because you're unified around the idea that you allow other people to be themselves and to have that freedom without you having to impose your your own perspectives on others, knowing that you are afforded that same ability yourself. You know, there are limitations on it. It's not everything goes. As you say, it ends, you know, when you start infringing upon other people. But that concept is something to unify around because that is what allows a pluralistic, diverse society that respects the individuality and, and freedoms of others to exist. Otherwise, you end up getting division and strife and and just competing political forces
0: Right. And I think you put it uh, better than I could have. That's exactly what I'm driving at. But the other way that unity and diversity can exist is if the diversity is all defined as the same thing. In other words, we're going to celebrate diversity as long as the diversity all accords with one culture. Mm. That's where it gets conflicting because that's not diversity. That's sameness. In other words, unity and diversity are not opposites. Not if we define diversity as unity.
1: I will say there's another way to look at that that falls in that same line, and that is where you can divide diversity into diversity of race, diversity of culture, but separate that from diversity of thought or diversity of ideology. And -hmm. you could say, you know, we don't care where you come from or what you do. We can be plenty diverse, but we have to be unified in all thinking the same. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of where the church is headed in all this. You can come from wherever you want to, and that's fine, but we all have to think the same.
0: And I think that he ends up kind of saying that later on in his talk. By the way, before we get there about Utah was a slave territory, Mm -hmm. his talk does not necessarily follow the same pattern that I would follow if I were giving the talk, so I have to jump around a bit. But here he says, in contrast, in contrast to those bad Missourians, right? In contrast, our doctrine respected the Native Americans, and our desire was to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. With respect to slavery, our scriptures had made it clear that no man should be in bondage to another. Well, yeah, the scriptures made it clear, but unfortunately, the leaders of the church didn't follow what the scriptures made clear because Utah was a slave territory. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think there's also even a part in the Doctrine and Covenants where it specifically says that we don't believe in teaching the gospel to a man's slave, we'll just, slaves, we'll just teach it to the man and then, you know, encourage him to treat his slaves uh, well. So, when you have that degree of, that's that's a different level of um, condemning slavery. It's not condemning slavery, it's basically tolerating
0: slavery uh, and allowing it to exist. Right. And these were some of the political things that I think the church did when they were in Missouri because of the situation that they were in. They were willing to compromise their beliefs about slavery in order to get along with the white Missourian settlers. Is that fair to say, do you think?
1: I I agree. Yeah, I think the people that have looked at the context historically of when these revelations came out and other statements made and published by the church and its leaders was specifically to address those concerns so that the the regional Missourians wouldn't get the sense that Mormons were going to be accepting of escaped slaves and, and allow them to uh, come and inhabit their communities. But, right. you know, like like Elder Holland says, you know, you've got to make a choice. And they made their choice.
0: Right, and they kind of bent over backwards to accommodate the, um, the Missourians, and it was all for naught anyway because they got kicked out of Jackson County and ultimately out of Missouri altogether. So now let's get to this part. Okay. Can you pull up the part that starts with our church culture? Uh, Let's see here. Okay, here we go. This part becomes fascinating to me because first off, he presumes that the church has a culture. And I think that's probably true to some respect. I mean, it's very different being a Mormon than being a non-Mormon. There's definitely a culture involved in the church, right? Yeah, I would agree. So, but he is going to prioritize the church culture. First off, he's going to say that that the church culture is the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So therefore, church culture is the best culture there is because it's Jesus's culture. And now he's going to go to the epistle of the apostle Paul to the Romans is profound. And now he's going to completely misuse the epistle after saying how profound it is. But here's what he says. Okay. He's going to talk about culture. And this is where he's going to wind back to basically saying that you need to conform your culture to the church's culture. If you are a member of the church, the early church in Rome was composed of Jews and Gentiles. Thank you. These early Jews had a Judaic culture. OK, so there's a Jewish culture and had won their emancipation and began to multiply and flourish. That's a quote. I looked it up from uh, a book by Farrar, and I don't even know why he puts it here. But regardless, the Gentiles in Rome had a culture. So there's a second culture, right? With a significant Hellenistic influence, which the Apostle Paul understood well because of his experiences at Athens and Corinth. OK, so we've got two cultures. Actually, we've got three cultures, right? Because there's the culture of Jesus which he opens up with, which is the church culture. But back then you got the Jewish culture, you got the the Gentile culture. And then he says, can you read this next paragraph? Sure, he says, Paul sets forth the gospel of Jesus Christ
1: In a comprehensive fashion. He chronicles pertinent aspects of both Judaic and Gentile culture that conflict with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He essentially asks each of them to leave behind cultural impediments from their beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul admonishes the Jews and the Gentiles to keep the commandments and love one another and affirms that
0: righteousness leads to salvation. Okay. Now, the first thing is, is that in the epistle to the Romans, actually, Paul doesn't set forth different aspects of Judaic and Gentile culture and ask them to leave behind their cultural impediments from their beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That isn't really one of the main thrusts of the epistle to the Romans. Now, he does that in 1 Corinthians, but Romans is actually notable for Paul not getting into those kinds of areas and issues and using the entire epistle to set forth in detail his view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's one of the found foundational uh, books in the Bible, at least for Protestantism. And, of course, we know that it talks about uh, grace and salvation by grace and not by works. And that's one of the mm-hmm. things that is a constant theme in this epistle. But regardless... Regardless of what I see as a, somewhat of a misuse, he talks about them leaving. And that's also why he says he essentially asks them. As soon as someone says he essentially asks them, you know, it's not exactly really what he's asking them, right? right. Uh, he essentially asks each of them to leave behind cultural impediments from their beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. What is he talking about now? What kind of application is he giving to this in today's world? What culture is there out there? that has parts of their culture that contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: Uh, I mean, if I'm trying to give them, extend some charity to Brother Cook, uh, you know, you could say we've always heard that in societies and cultures that do accept polygamy, then when a polygamist joins the church now, he actually has to end that practice of polygamy because it is inconsistent with the
0: church as it is today. Okay. And that would be one example. I think that would be a good example. Uh, Certainly not something that happens an awful lot. I expect Uh, another example that came to my mind, maybe, you know, I served my mission in Japan. Uh, They drink a lot of tea there. I understand they drink a lot of tea in jolly old England as well. And that could be seen as part of your culture that you have to leave behind in order to uh, conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least Mormonism. Right. But really, yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's a whole lot to Japanese culture above and beyond just drinking the tea and the tea ceremony, okay? There's a whole lot of other stuff. So it seems like there'd be very, very, maybe sometimes very small little things that perhaps you'd have to abandon from your culture to obey the commandments. So it doesn't seem like there would be a whole lot of use for this, but he says we have to leave behind cultural impediments from beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, we understand there may be some... Uh, examples of that they're probably not big things and they're probably not a lot of things but now go to the next paragraph okay and read the first line or actually just read the first couple of lines if you would i feel like i'm teaching a class (laughs) i
1: will now read the culture of the gospel of jesus christ is not a gentile culture or a judaic culture it is not determined by the color of one's skin or where one lives. While we rejoice in distinctive cultures, we should leave behind aspects of those cultures that conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, now that's our kind me- of what
0: he just said, right? That's kind of what he just said, but now he's going to go on. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, our, our members and new converts often come from diverse racial and cultural backgrounds. If we are to follow President Nelson's admonition to gather scattered Israel, we will find we are just as different as the Jews and Gentiles were in Paul's time. Yet,
0: we can be united in our love of and faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, hang on. So far, everything he said, eh, we can sort of understand. It doesn't seem to be hugely applicable. But watch him and what he does in this very next paragraph where he does a full reversal.
1: Okay, well, there's more into this paragraph where he says, Paul's epistle to the Romans that establishes That's it. the principle that we follow the culture and doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the model for us even today. Okay, what the did he just say there? It's the mo- so So, we have to follow Paul's description of the gospel even today, the culture and doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Right. It is the superculture. culture. We have the super culture. We have the best culture. And even though he's been talking sort of about leaving behind just those aspects that conflict with the gospel, now he says, Paul's epistle to the Romans establishes, which it doesn't, but he's going to teach it anyway. The principle, and the principle is that we follow the culture and doctrine. So let's just leave the culture. We follow the culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, i.e., we follow the culture of the LDS church. And therefore, that's how I see him saying Unity and diversity actually ends up meaning unity in unity.
1: This this explains so much. You know, you have to ask yourself, why is it in 2020 that there's such a disparity in the time afforded to women speakers in general conference? And isn't it in one of these Paulian epistles where they say the woman need to shut up at church?
0: Yes, it is. And it's actually later in that same epistle, in a later chapter where it talks the about the prophesying. That's, yeah.
1: that's the culture.
0: It makes so much sense. So, yeah, that is the culture of, you right, the culture of the church right now, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ culture. It's the best culture. It's the culture that we all have to abide by. And that's how we achieve unity.
1: Well, this explains, like, even when you see, like, the church is great at taking pictures of usually dark-skinned people in other places because they want to give this worldwide perspective of the church that's accepting of all races. But they'll go to different parts of the country, of the world, where there are cultural... Um, signatures in the manner of dress, um, whether it's areas where a dashiki is worn or areas where there's tattoos or things that are cultural that you would think, you know, whether or not you wear a particular piece of clothing that is considered to be formal and respectful in that time, whether you get a tattoo, shouldn't conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's no moral dimension to those things. But when you see those photos, what is it? They're wearing a white shirt, you know, even if they are, you know, wearing a, a skirt or a longer uh, skirt type stuff that men may wear or a colorful thing, it's still adopting this outward white shirt 1950s businessman attire that Mormonism has kind of become thing. But that's the gospel. That's the culture. You know, those are the, some of the cultural signatures that the church has imposed on members in the past. And I think it's changing. I think we're allowing missionaries to be a little bit more individual. But, um, but this is the way these men think. Uh, you know, it's in talks like this that you can see why, when people say that the church adopts a, a kind of a neo-colonial perspective in the way that it spreads its culture to other countries. You know, you go if, if people in those other countries adopt Mormonism, well, suddenly they'd have to start wearing a Western suit and tie. This is really exemplified if you see some of the broadcasts of the apostles when they go to areas, particularly in Africa, and um, and you see that there's, a, you know, they're trying to dress like Americans in the church context, and that's because we tell them this is the right way to be the gospel, the culture of the church. Utah culture is the way that the world needs to be.
0: Yes, and it was earlier on. It was earlier on in the same talk that he said that Mormons respected the Native Americans by teaching them the gospel. And then by
1: dressing up as Native Americans and murdering the Fancher Party in the Mountain Meadows Massacre so that the Native Americans
0: would get the blame. That would be one thing. That would be one thing. Another thing would be the Indian Placement Program, where kind of the reverse was Absolutely. going on, where they were taking the young uh, Navajo children, I think predominantly, putting them in white Mormon households and then raising them as white Mormons. Right, with
1: the idea that they're going to get a better culture, a, a more sophisticated life by adopting that uh, perspective and that you know inhabiting
0: that culture. You know, these are this is how you show respect. Right, and that actual quote I just scrolled up, in contrast, he says, in contrast to the bad Missourians, remember, our doctrine respected the Native Americans, and our desire was to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it doesn't, it might, I understand from his point of view, that they want everybody to become a Mormon because that's the best thing in the world, and that's the only way you go to the celestial kingdom, right? And the only way you have joy in this life. So I understand that from his point of view but the fact that he's respecting the native Americans by teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of a talk that talks about the culture of Jesus Christ being the super culture to any other culture, which would obviously include native American culture and which was manifest in the history of the LDS church by the Indian placement program. I think that reasonable, I think that reasonable people could differ on whether that is a demonstration of respect on yeah. the part of the Mormons for the Native Americans. yeah. <clears throat> we are almost to the, the last talk. I did want to say one other thing about it that was so interesting. This is back up there, too, because this is where we talk about with our all-inclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Very next line, uh, excuse me, next paragraph. Wards and branches in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are determined by geography or language, not by race or culture right so you can see he's trying to make it sound like we're the best we have we celebrate this diversity but then he says race is not identified on membership records do you have that up there really yeah 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 race is not identified on membership records and you know that may be true i'm not sure i've seen a lot of membership records for uh black people in the church but yeah i don't think it is But I know something that is identified on membership records that he's not talking about. Which is what? Homosexuality.
1: How is that identified on member records?
0: My understanding is, and this is not by personal knowledge, I have to say, is that there is an asterisk or some sort of notation on a membership record for those who are uh, same-sex attracted.
1: Hmm. That keep- that serves to
0: make sure that they don't get called into positions of leadership. Well, like with the young men's. Yeah. Got to keep the young ones moral after school. Yep. So then, do you have anything else to say about this wonderful talk by Elder Cook?
1: It, it's really... I have a lot of conflict when I read talks like this because there's a surface level interpretation. If you want to just say, okay, I'm going to just disregard anything in history and I'm just going to listen to his words. And I think that there's something that can be good in seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ as something around which people of all different cultures and values can unify around. And I think to the extent that you equate the gospel of Jesus Christ with love and compassion and tolerance and acceptance, there's something good and ennobling about that. Uh, The the problem is that the church injects its own leadership into that mix. And so, when they say you're, you're following Christ, what they really mean is you're following us as men who tell you what it means to follow Christ. And so, it's just, it's one of these things where they can lead with some good ideas that seem to be um, principles around which you would want to unify, but they subvert it with the injection of their authority, and it just becomes, uh, you know, something that would be uh, more difficult
0: to accept if they were honest about it. Yeah, follow Jesus means follow me. Yeah. Do you remember that old... uh Jim Henson TV show back in the '90s called Dinosaurs. Yeah. Do you remember the company that the the Daddy Dinosaur worked for? No, I don't. I only remember not the Mama. Yeah, not the Mama. I'm the baby, gotta <laughs> love me. So, yep. but the, the the company he worked for was the We Say So Corporation. <laughs> and, and I can't help but think about the LDS Church when I think about the We Say So Corporation. Yep. Okay, so are we we ready to go to Elder Oaks? We got
1: 30 minutes for Elder Oaks. Is he the last one on that Saturday session worth going to? Oh, you're giving Rasband the short shrift? He doesn't even have anything worth saying? No, he drew the short Yeah, what? He's going to just wallow around in his millions of dollars. He doesn't need to
0: say anything controversial. I'm giving him the Rasband raspberry. This was (laughs) a talk that was imminently forgettable. I like Elder Rasband. I worked with Elder Asband. You, sir, are no Elder Asband. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. But he's a nice guy. I mean, it's like, um, what is he? He's like uh, uh, Curly from The Three Stooges. I like him. Yeah. I think he's a genuinely nice guy, but this is a genuinely forgettable talk. And he's talking about how we should all have temple recommends, even though the temples aren't open. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's his all talk. Right, and, very good. Film. and now from President Dallin H. Oaks, which is titled Love Your Enemies and subtitled, and everyone is my enemy. <laughs> no, it doesn't have that subtitle. It's called Love Your Enemies. So he's going to give a talk, which is similar to Elder Cook's, right? Do you want to start off with this one?
1: Uh, let's see here. Do you want me to, where do you want to read at? Well, the main I have thing- to confess, I didn't get to his talk. I got through oh Elder gosh. Cook's talk. I know, oh I'm a gosh. terrible person.
0: I'm a terrible host. That's why I have you here. Well, he's talking about we need to love our enemies. And he says some good things. Let's talk about the good things he says, Okay. Okay. He talks about how uh, if there is a problem with transferring power, you know, people have threatened violence. Uh, We're talking about the presidential election coming up. Yeah. And the transfer of peaceful transfer of power, and people have threatened violence about that. And we will not be a part of that violence if that happens. Mm. Okay. Okay? So he talks about that. I think that's positive. He talks about peaceful protests versus violent protests. And he says peaceful protests are guaranteed by the First Amendment but uh, destruction of property and violence to other people is not protected by the first amendment. So um, I don't think that's really remarkable. I'm glad to hear him saying it. His talk is really based a lot on the law since he is the, the lawyer who used to be on the Utah Supreme court, who's Mm -hmm. in the church leadership. So he talks a lot about the law. And then he says down here, and I, I don't have these numbered, these paragraphs, but he says, among other ways to develop the power To love others. So he's going to tell us how we can love others and follow Jesus' commandment to love our enemies. Among other ways to develop the power to love others uh, is the simple method. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Described in a long ago musical. This cracks me up. (laughs) Thank you,
1: RFN's ears pop up. Musical?
0: Elder Oates watching a musical, or maybe even performing in the musical, or maybe even singing the song, which he's going to reference. When we are trying to understand or relate to people of a different culture, what should we do, Jonathan? Break into song? No, I'm sorry. Do you have the sentence in front of you? This is your your cue. Uh, This is my cue. Keep up with me. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Among other ways
1: to develop the power to love others is the simple method described in a long-ago musical. When we are trying to understand and relate to people of a different culture, we should try getting to know them. In countless
0: circumstances... Wait, whoa, whoa. Stop, 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 stop. Full stop. Do you have any idea what he's even talking about?
1: I think I do. I uh, Just as I read that. What? Getting to know you. That's it. Getting to know all of, But he doesn't... Does he even explain that? No, he doesn't. He doesn't even put it in quotes. But yeah, so he's, not, he's referencing the King and I, Yes. but he doesn't bother to actually explicitly say that.
0: Yes. Getting to like you, hoping that you, getting to hope you like me. I don't have it memorized, but I just picture I, I was, breaking into song and getting out a little, you know, a, a skimmer hat, maybe a cane, doing a little a soft shoe up there. <laughs> I was going to say it was probably everything's up to date in Kansas City. Oh, my gosh. We've gone about as far as we can go. <laughs> they got we, a big theater. They call the Burley queue For 50 cents <laughs> the <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, we should try getting to know them. Well, I think that's probably a good idea. We should try and get to know people who are uh, different people. Maybe we might think of them as our enemies. Um You know, wonderful. I think that's great. The funny thing about it is he goes on in the next paragraph and even greater help in learning to love our adversaries and our enemies is to seek to understand the power of love. And there I thought he was going to (laughs) say the simple method described in a long ago, Huey Lewis and the News song. (laughs) Does he understand (laughs) the power of love? (laughs) It's the power of love. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Okay. So
1: we're having. If only, you know, that I would have actually a more softened and congenial
0: impression of Elder Oaks if he allowed some of that stuff to to be there. That may be the closing song. (laughs) Yeah. A radio free Mormon, Huey Lewis in the News, the power of love in honor of President Oaks. Yes. But here's what he goes on to say. Now, we got to get more serious here. Okay. Okay. Uh, One of the things that he does here, and he does it throughout, and we've only got 25 minutes. So this is one of my big peeves. And this isn't the only time I've heard it in general conference talks. It is this idea where he quotes uh, a number of things. It's really right under it. Uh, Different passages from the Doctrine and Covenants, Articles of Faith. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And then uh, it means that we obey the current law and use peaceful means to change it. Okay, here's why I have problems with this. It's because this has become... The position of the church, that whatever country you're in, no matter what kind of government you have, and no matter how good or how bad that government might be in any respect, it is your duty as a Latter-day Saint to obey the laws of that government. And he goes on and he mentions this throughout. It's not the primary focus, but he hits on the basic building blocks of it. And I know that That's what they do. And I know that they want to do that in order to curry favor with less than friendly governments in order to allow the missionaries into their countries to do missionary work. Because one of their big selling points is it doesn't make any difference how crappy a government you are, you Chai Com people. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, wherever it is, whether it was East Germany back in the day, whether it was uh, Chinese communists more recently, it doesn't make any difference what your track record on human rights is we are going to teach our members that they need to obey your government and do everything you tell them to do and not raise a fuss, right? And keep the law. And that's part of being a Mormon. And therefore it would be a good idea for you to allow us to come into your country. So we can teach the members to honor, uphold and sustain you as the leaders of the government. So this is something that they teach today. This is not what the church actually originally taught in the doctrine and covenants. There are some places that he quotes from that do say that, but there are other places in the Doctrine and Covenants that modify that in an important respect. By the way, once again, this idea that you follow your government no matter what it says, if you're a good Mormon, even applied in Nazi Germany. And yeah. that is why the Mormons there typically, unless their name was, I don't know, Hubner or something, but typically the Mormons who were doing what the leaders of the church in Salt Lake were telling them to do were among the best Nazis, okay? Yeah. And you can look
1: at the book, Moroni and the Swastika by David Nelson. There's also a presentation of his presentation at an ex-Mormon conference that's on the Thoughts on Things and Stuff channel that goes over multiple stories of good Mormons that, because of this idea, were good Nazis.
0: Right. It was the German. same thing. It was the same thing. And so this is why I want to bring up the fact that there are at least two places in the Doctrine and Covenants that give this important qualifier to that, and that actually the scriptures that we have, I think, have some positive things in them. Unfortunately, a lot of the positive things that are in the scriptures that we have have been changed by the current leaders of the church, and this is one of them. Okay, so section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants talks about, it's a statement and a declaration of belief regarding governments. Okay, it's not put forth as a revelation, but it is in our scriptures. And it talks about what we think the proper role of government is. And in verse five, we get to the important part for purposes of this conversation. Section 134, verse five says, we believe that all men are bound to sustain and uphold the respective governments in which they reside. But that's not a period. That's a comma. Because listen to what comes next while protected in their inherent and inalienable rights by the laws of such governments. So that's an important qualifier. We're bound to respect the laws of our government, but only if that government protects us in our inherent and inalienable rights. And it goes on and says, and that sedition and rebellion are unbecoming every citizen thus protected. See how it's repeated there as well?
2: Yeah,
0: It's Mm -hmm. unbecoming that you rebel against your government as long as that government's protecting you in your inherent and inalienable rights. And I did notice when I was researching this, that's the one I always think of, but in section 98, which is couched as a revelation directly from God, it makes a similar comment. Let's see, section 98. I'm doing my scripture search here. Scripture mastery, scripture chase. Let's see, 98 verses 4. Through seven. So that's a little bit long. Let me go through this real quickly, okay? Actually, can you read that? Do you have that, Jonathan?
1: Uh, I almost have it up. For some reason I'm I'm getting lag on the
0: church's website. I don't know what the Uh-oh. deal is. All of the people watching this program are slowing it down. They're going there too. Uh, yeah, maybe. Hold up. Okay. 134. That's yeah, verses four through seven.
1: Hold on, hold on, hold on.
0: So 98's not showing up for some reason. I don't know what the deal is. You're going to have to read it. I think they just took it out while I was talking, but I have a hard copy here in front of me. So uh, section 98, verses 4 through 7, and now verily I say unto you, God speaking, I say unto you concerning the laws of the land, it is my will that my people should observe to do all things whatsoever I command them. And that law of the land, which is constitutional, supporting that principle of freedom in maintaining rights and privileges, belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. Therefore I, the Lord, justify you and your brethren of my church in befriending that law, which is the constitutional law of the land. And as pertaining to law of man, whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. Hmm. So that's a similar expression being given by God himself in endorsing the idea that we are beholden to obey the laws of the land, but only if it's constitutional law, And in section 134, verse 5, that's elaborated upon to show that that means that as long as that government protects us in our inherent and inalienable rights.
1: And and I think that mirrors the sentiment of the Declaration of Independence, which sets out the idea reflected in kind of the classical liberalism uh, political philosophy of the Founding Fathers, that there are rights that individuals possess as a starting point. And that governments uh, can be delegated those rights but then cannot infringe on certain rights and that's more explicitly laid out in the Bill of Rights. And I can see how when you read the different complaints that Joseph Smith had early on in his various petitions to the federal government Uh, Anytime they didn't do what he wanted in terms of redress for the um, damages incurred over the various conflicts of the church, he framed that as the federal government is incapable of protecting our inalienable rights, and so any action that we may take against the federal government may therefore be justified. And this is the same rhetoric that you hear in Desnat today, that uh, justifies any type of action that they may take against the federal government. You see it in the, um, the ranchers out in Idaho, the Bundy uh, folks who took over like a, a federal uh, building. And there was a big conflict over there. All of that is informed
0: by these themes that you're talking about. Right. Well, I just want to go down here. We're at 842 now. So we've got about 18 minutes, but I know we're going to have to close quickly. So I do want to make sure I get to the quote. There were two of them, as I recall. I'm having trouble locating uh, the one. But here's the, um, the main one where he, as a leader of the LDS church, condemns the racism of others. And this is uh, at the end of a paragraph. Um, can you find the one that says the United States was founded by immigrants of different nationalities? Uh yeah. Okay. Because it's the end okay, of the paragraph. I found it. It's the yeah. end of the paragraph right above it.
1: Okay, excellent. So Does this
0: country, yeah, this yeah. Co-
1: this country should be better in eliminating racism not only against black Americans who were most visible in the recent protests, but also against Latinos, Asians, and other groups. This nation's history of racism is not a happy one, and we must do
0: better. Boom. That's where I'm sitting here saying, do you even hear yourself? Okay. I mean, being the leader of a church that has excluded black people from your temples because of the color of their skin and because your temples are your most holy buildings. I mean, we had in the 1930s and for a long time in this country, especially in the South, we had places where black people were not allowed to enter because of the color of their skin whether it was a restaurant, whether it was a hotel, whether it was some kind of other building where only white people could go and black people could not enter. There was a sign outside in many of those that says, "You know, colored people cannot come inside. Black people, you cannot come inside. And the fact is, is that we went through a great civil rights movement in this country, mainly in the 50s and also in the 60s, and we got rid of those buildings. Those were decided to be unconstitutional and it was unlawful for public places to exclude black people from their premises on the color of their skin. But until 1978, well, Jonathan,
1: hold on a Well, hold on a second, though. In that civil rights fight, which side was the church on?
0: Well, um, if you're
1: talking about—you <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, we have the example of Apostle Delbert Stapley writing a chastising letter to George Romney because George Romney had the audacity to march with these civil rights people and to uh, run his campaign on the issue of civil rights and to hire minority people for major positions in his political machine. And Delbert Stapley writes him a letter and condemns him for his support of civil rights and trying to end segregation. And in that letter, you can Google it, just do uh, George Romney and the Delbert Stapley letter. Uh, it, It makes it very clear that the church leadership at this point in history, at the point in history where we are working through one of the major defects of mankind in our society and culture, the church was standing for segregation against civil rights at the time.
0: Yes, and if I recall it correctly, Delbert Stapley gently suggests to Governor Romney that his membership in the church might be in jeopardy. And that his life would be in jeopardy. He, in fact, he goes far so far as to say three different
1: presidents who tried to fight for civil liberties got assassinated, and that's what may happen for people who think they know better than the Lord. And then he talks about some sh- poor schmuck who came to the church leaders trying to advocate for civil rights in the church and, and acknowledge it, and that guy drowned. And so you need to be careful for your life. I mean, it's, it's like the the threatening language in that letter is so remarkable coming from an apostle. Definitely check it out if you haven't read it yet.
0: Yeah, and, and of course, there's Elder Benson, who became President Benson, who had a lot to say about Martin Luther King and the yeah. civil rights movement of his time, which was not at all positive. He was not in favor of that. He thought it was a bad thing. So you're right. The church has a track record of being on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. But to complete that point that I was laboring toward, in 1978, up till June of 1978, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints still had buildings that were not allowing black people inside because of the color of their skin. And they might as well have had signs on their temples up to that point saying, no colored people allowed, because that was the fact, Jack. Absolutely.
1: Uh, That was, you know, one of the memes that I put on the thoughts on things and stuff website was basically taking one of those signs that said uh, no colored people, or I think it said no Negroes and putting it right above the placard. That is the uh, name of the church on every temple, because absolutely analogous, parallel, and identical to segregation in the other civil areas of uh, uh, society at that time, the church remained segregated in its most holy places. And that segregation uh, is one of the most embarrassing aspects of the church. And to your point earlier that I think was focused on this thing, for this guy to stand up and lecture the nation about its racist past without acknowledging the contribution of his same seat of authority and power to that in the hearts and minds of church members in that same history is the utmost of hypocrisy.
0: That's my sense, too. And, of course, members of the church will come back and say, well, you know, black people could go to the chapels, right? They were always admitted into the chapels. It's just into these few temples that they weren't admitted. And they'll say it's because of their lineage, not because of the color of the skin, as as if that makes a dime's worth of difference. Yeah. But but my point of view is that when you're saying that it's only in these most sacred places, the sacred temples that black people could not enter because of the color of their skin up until 1978, I'm not sure that makes your position any better.
1: No, it's it's almost worse because it's not just a temple ban. It's also a ban on the surety of your eternal family. It's a ban on your ability to inhabit any leadership from general to local. It's a ban on your ability to even participate fully in the quorum as a young leader. As a father, it's your a ban on your ability to bless your own children for healing or a name. In all of these contexts, they had to have a white priesthood holder come in and do these things. Uh, If your family got sick and you wanted to give them, as a father, a blessing of healing, you could not lay your hands on their head and do that. Uh, You had to call up your home teacher and and do that. Uh, There's a great letter called, um, I too am born of goodly parents that was found in the Stuart Udall collection at the University of Arizona. Um, there's a, uh, I think a video reading of it in one of the early uh, Thoughts on Things and Stuff lectures, but it's a very powerful letter and it was circulating among people who were against the church policy because it really gave a full picture of what it means to be uh, black and Mormon prior to 1978 and
0: uh, it was very eye-opening. Wow, yeah. By the way, I I also want to say that it's a good thing that the church lifted the priesthood ban and temple ban in 1978. I know it's been over 40 years ago. Okay. I do get that. And I think that's a positive thing. The only issue I have is with elder Oaks talking as if the church never had any part in that. And elder cook before him as well. He did the same kind of thing. He never mentions this and talking as if it's always been, uh, roses between the LDS church and African-Americans. By the way, I found the other quote in his talk where he lectures about um, racism. He does does refer it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as members, right? But he seems Mm -hmm. to be talking about the members. That's where he says, as citizens and as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we must do better to help root out racism. so i think that's a positive sentiment yes we do need to do better to root out racism but i think that one of the best ways to root out racism is to acknowledge our role in racism that was part and parcel of our church for over half of its history and acknowledge it identify it publicly so that we can therefore move forward because i do not think that the church will ever be able to move forward from its racist past without acknowledging it and apologizing for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And coming to terms with the, the impact of the leadership and the paradigm of obedience that they enforced all of that with. Uh, it's a real, I don't know, it's a, a reckoning that has to happen.
0: Right. And I know that leaders of the church present as if they are always stunned and surprised that it's been 40 years and 42 years now since they lifted the ban and there are still people who have a problem with it. They talk about, well, that was a long time ago. You know, this is now we're moving forward and they seem to want to be able to move forward without apologizing for the past. And they seem to be surprised that so many members of the church are not willing to allow them to do that. And if I could just talk to the leaders of the church right now, because I know that at least at Radio Free Mormon, I have members of the Strengthening Church Members Committee who regularly monitor my broadcasts. Hi, Elder Dykes, by the way. I always like to do that because I know he's listening. This message is for the leaders of the church. Please pass it along, Elder Dykes. The deal is this, is that you cannot expect the members of the church or the world in general to move on from the racist history of the LDS church with the priesthood and temple ban until the leaders of the church announce publicly that they did it, that it was wrong, and that they are sorry and apologize for it. Once they do that, they'll be able to move on and the world will move on with them. And in fact, the world will appreciate it, and many members of the church will appreciate it the fact that they are humble enough and following the example of Jesus enough to be able to admit their mistakes. And repent of them, but repentance is never complete, as we are taught in the church, until you ask the forgiveness of those you have offended. End of sermon. Yeah, absolutely. There's
1: there's a thing called uh, what what is it? Uh, moral legitimacy, and the church has zero moral legitimacy to lecture the world on these issues unless it actually does what you've described, and and specifically. Because Elder Oaks had an opportunity in the 2017 B1 celebration or the 2018 B1 celebration, he had an opportunity to lay one particular question to rest, which is, did the priesthood ban itself come as a commandment from God or was it the product of racism? And what he said was that the ban was from God, but the reasons that were racist came from the leaders. And that still leaves the reality for black members of the church dealing and wrestling with this history that the ban itself came from God and the ban was predicated on a racist question, what race are you? And that determines whether or not you have access to the temple, whether or not you fall under the curse and all the other things. That question itself is inherently racist. The ban was inherently racist regardless of what reasons were given for it. And so you have to lay the ban itself at the foot of the leaders if you want to move uh,
0: past this. Yeah, ultimately it comes down to either the leaders were racist or God was racist. And so far, uh, for me personally, I would rather put the, the the fault of racism at the feet of the leaders than of God. But from Absolutely. the leaders... And yeah.
1: What you were saying where the ter- the world will actually respect them more... Just go back to May of 2018 when the church met with the NAACP and I published a clunkily done and and regretfully uh, done apology as though the church did it. Um, Wait, that was you? You did that? You you know that that was me. It was. (laughs) But... Um, you know, I should have made it more explicit that it was satire so that people didn't take it seriously. And that's, that's something that, you know, is reflected in, in my apology about the apology. But um, what it did do though, is it gave people a moment to consider the possibility of what if the church leaders actually did it. And more than any other response, people felt that it was a Christ-like thing to do. It increased their faith and their desire to be associated with the church. It, it brought for that brief moment, a sense of of healing for this wound that clearly continues to fester, and so if they would just go back and pay attention to that moment and say, this is a huge helping of goodwill that we could capture by adopting this type of apology on this issue, this type of responsibility and accountability, that's something that the that's goodwill the church is leading on the- ta- leading on the table. That it is not yet picked up,
0: and I wish they would do it. I agree. Well, we're at the close of our time period. All right, we did it. We did it. We we covered the two hour Saturday morning session of General Conference in just under two hours. <laughs> but of course, we only did it by talking about half the talks. Yeah, that's okay though, because the
1: other the other people are clowns. Boring. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, let's do this again. And when you, when you have your thoughts collected about the next session, you know, there's, we're always, uh, you know, striving to find something to talk about. And it's always a pleasure to, uh, listen to what you have to say about these things. I always learn something and I always enjoy your insights. So thank you so much for sharing, uh, your wisdom and personality with me on my channel. And certainly you can take the audio and post it as an
0: episode on RFM. You are so welcome. Until next time, this has been Coffee Puck on Things and Stuff.